You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you, or if you're in a red chair, there's one at the end of the aisle. Uh, You can just ask somebody to pass that over to you. We want you to see God's Word for yourself. Uh, If you're online, there's a link to YouVersion where you can find notes to the sermon and the Bible passage as well, Uh, but the authority is in the Word of God. Amen? Amen. So as you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. I want to do a little bit of a thought experiment, a little thought exercise for you. I want you to imagine that you were born in a nation that had an absolute monarchy. An absolute monarchy is a a nation where the king actually has all the power. So not a a figurehead king, but, but one king who has all the power. What would you hope that king would be like? What would you hope that king would be like? Get a a few words into your mind right now. What would you hope a king with absolute power would be like? A few words that come to my mind would be uh, wise, maybe uh, protective of his people, just, generous, honest, caring. Some words that do not come to mind uh, would be weak. I mean, I I might not love the fact that I have to have somebody in authority over me, but if they're going to have authority, they better have some power, right? How about indifferent? Um, Self-centered. Just kind of sitting back in their castle, not really caring about what's going on among the peasants. But insecure, need, needing to fight for their power and, and prove that they're the, the most powerful. Now, some of us are having a hard time even imagining living under that kind of government. It, it, this kind of disturbs our senses, especially for us Americans, right? Like, we, we kind of dealt with the whole king thing back in 1776. Uh, we don't want anything to do with that anymore. But if we did live in a kingdom with a king, we would want our king to have true authority and exceptional character. True authority and exceptional character. A king must be capable and he must be good. Now the truth is, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you are going to have to live in an absolute monarchy. You're going to live, as was referenced earlier, as a citizen of the kingdom of God. A king who has absolute and total authority and control. Jesus is a king who will not share his glory with another. And I want you to know that he is the best king. He is the best king, and you can trust him, and you can love him, and you can submit your life to him. We're going we're gonna to see that today in the book of Mark. Mark wrote this gospel, this, this theological biography of Jesus, 
to show that Jesus is the Christ. What do we say when we hear the word Christ? No? The, yes, the promised anointed Savior King. Say it with me. The promised anointed Savior King. That's what Christ means. He is the, he is the Son of God. That's the gospel, really. It's the good news that Jesus is Savior and Lord over all because He is God. And the gospel is an invitation to willingly place yourself under His authority through repentance and faith. It's an invitation to participate in His kingdom even though we are prone to rebel against His kingdom in our sin There's no reason we should receive this invitation, but he gives it to us freely out of an act of his grace. And even though the idea of a king is contrary to our American sensibilities and contrary to our flesh that wants to rule our own lives, it is actually good news that Jesus wants to be your king. Because he makes a better king than we ever could of our own lives. He makes a better king over the whole world. You might think you have opinions on how this world should go. Guess what? Jesus' opinions are better because they're fact. We're going to see just how good the news of Jesus as king is today because through a number of skillfully written scenes, Mark is going to show us that Jesus has total compassion for people And he uses his authority as king over all creation to show that compassion. And so here's what I hope to see in our study today. Uh, Jesus shows compassion by exercising his authority. Pay attention to him. That's our big idea for the day. Jesus shows compassion by exercising his authority. Pay attention to him to him. We are in week three of our study in the book of Mark. Uh, He has showed us the urgency of the good news that, that Jesus preached and he called all people everywhere to repentance and faith because the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. We've stated the purpose of Mark's gospel this way, that now is the time to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why Mark is writing. And as we study, we want to develop that same sense of urgency, that same sense of clarity, that same sense of boldness. We want Mark's purpose to become our purpose because ultimately that's what Jesus calls his disciples to become. We saw last week that that Jesus took this broad preaching message and he made it very specific. He called four fishermen and gave them a preview of what they were getting into. He said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus laid it all out right there from the beginning. He gave a preview to the whole discipleship pathway. He said, follow me. Follow me. You need to stop following your own path and start following the path of Jesus instead. That's what it means to believe. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he said then, I will make you become. 
Following Jesus is not about who you were, it's about who you are becoming in the power of Christ. He, he does the work in us. He equips us with everything that we need. And Jesus makes his followers become fishers of men. Because disciples are following him, they start doing the things that he does, preaching the message that he preaches And so now these four men who he made that initial call to have started to follow him. They are becoming who he wants them to be. And their process of becoming starts by observing. It starts by paying attention, by being with. Discipleship is a process of being with Jesus. They get a front row seat. who he is. And if we're going to become what Jesus wants us to become, we, we must spend time with him. We must get to know who he is and what he is like. And, and the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written for that very purpose. That, that through their witness, through this testimony, we might know Christ and love him. They show us that Jesus is unlike any teacher. He's unlike any other religious leader. He is unlike any other king. And therefore, we need to pay attention. And so let's pay attention to Jesus by reading Mark 1, verses 21 to 45. Imagine yourself just hearing these stories from a first-hand account, because you are. Mark is likely writing under the testimony of Peter. Mark 1, 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. 
And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Jesus shows compassion by exercising his authority. Pay attention to him. Uh, Today we're going to see that by doing a little bit of math together. Anybody like math? A few? A few people like math. Not too many, right? Uh, But we're going to develop a little bit of an equation. We're going to call this the compassion authority equation, okay? And it's a a fairly complex equation, but I I, want to say this. It produces a powerful result. And so let's look at the first part of the equation in the first scene, verses 21 to 28, where Jesus demonstrates spiritual compassion that is multiplied by authority over demons. He takes his spiritual compassion and it's just multiplied by his demonstration of authority over demonic forces. So Mark sets the scene for us. Uh, Jesus and his new followers have gone into the town of Capernaum. That's actually where these guys, uh, Simon and Peter and and James and John, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Simon and Peter, Simon and Andrew and James and John actually lived. And it was the Sabbath. And so they went into the the synagogue, which was the gathering place for uh, teaching of the Old Testament law and for praying just think of this like a, like a Jewish church service, if you will. Uh, they met there three times a week. And uh, yet Jesus doesn't act like a first-time visitor who fills out the connection card and gets a gift. Jesus is actually there teaching. And that might seem really, really weird to us. Like imagine some guy who none of us knows just kind of walks in off the street and, and starts preaching something totally different than what we normally preach here. How's that going to go? Yeah, not, not so well, right? That would be really weird because like, we have doctrinal guidelines for teaching that, that's grounded upon the authority of God's word. But, but the, the, the scribes didn't have that kind of standard, apparently. There was a lot of debates about the Old Testament law and, and how it should be applied and all these things, and, and they had more questions than they did answers. And in a synagogue, as, as long as somebody was considered to be learned... Uh, they had studied Torah, or they led a religious sect, which Jesus now has some followers, right? They would be allowed to preach. And their, their preaching would be tested, it'd be questioned, it's kind of like debate time, right? But they still got to have the microphone, figuratively. So apparently, this resulted in there not being a whole lot of substance to the teaching of the scribes. There's just, it seems watered down. They're constantly just quoting other rabbis, church tradition, or rabbinic traditions, those types of things. But when Jesus starts teaching, something different is happening. They're amazed that he is teaching as one who has authority. 
Jesus wasn't quoting all these traditions and rabbis. He he wasn't mixing words and talking in circles. He was simply explaining the scriptures, interpreting them accurately and with authority. And they were amazed by this. Think, Think about how refreshing that is to your soul when somebody is like, just shoot straight with me. Just tell me what this means. Hold on to that thought for later. Because right in the middle of Jesus' teaching, a man interrupts. And he's not just any man. He's a man who's controlled by an unclean spirit, a, a demon. We talked about these demons over the Christmas season at the end of our study of the book of Ephesians. Uh, this is an angelic being who followed Satan in his rebellion against God. He has a measure of authority in this world. Um, in Ephesians, he's called the, the prince of the power of the air. Uh, this demon, Satan would be the prince of the power of the air. This demon would be a power over this present darkness. And he's using that authority to actively harm and harass a human being. Not only that, but he's using this power to harass Jesus as well. Notice what he says in verse 24. He says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I, I know who you are the Holy One of God. This demon demon knows who Jesus is because he has this insight because he exists in the heavenly realm, right? But he refers to Jesus first by his human identification. Jesus of Nazareth. Whenever you see Nazareth, think weakness. That's the way it was viewed. Worthlessness. Can anything good come from Nazareth? The demon is appointing to the apparent weakness of Jesus, his frail humanity. And he's taunting Jesus, assuming that it is not time for the Holy One of God to destroy the demonic authorities. But Jesus commands more authority than he expects, doesn't he? He rebukes him powerfully, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulses the man and he he shrieks with terror and frustration and he comes out and everyone is amazed and it gives even more weight to Jesus' teaching and his fame begins to spread. Now when you put this together with the rest of this section, as we're going to see, it is clear that Mark's emphasis is on the spiritual authority that Jesus commands. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. There's no ritual here. There's no ceremony. There's no trying to exercise the demon. It's just, be silent, get out. And they run away with their tail between their legs. That is absolute spiritual authority. But notice as well the direction that this authority is pointing. While the demon used his authority to harm the man... Right? He has power in this world, right? and he uses that to harm. That's how we often assume authority is used in our culture, right? Like authority is always to oppress. But not Jesus. Jesus uses his authority to heal. He could have just told the man to get out of the synagogue with the demon, right? Like the man was also part of the equation. He was interrupting the sermon. But instead, Jesus tells the demon to come out of the man. 
Jesus uses his authority to rightly assess the situation, to show compassion on a man made in the image of God. Now, a story like this can sometimes feel distant to us because we don't have demonically possessed people coming into our church very often, do we? We tend to think about demonic activity like it was confined to a period of Jesus' life or, or if it was, as if it was from a bygone age, a time when maybe they didn't understand all the things of science. But honestly, uh, that's a naive point of view. It shows that sometimes we need to get out more. Let me give you a few examples of how this is still very much an issue today. Uh, In Moline, Illinois, which is near Davenport, Iowa, we have a a partner church there in the GCC. Um, The Satanic Temple in the town uh, just started an after-school Satan club in the public schools. And apparently, um, USA Today was kind of saying, why is everybody making a big deal of this? This happens all over the nation. Well, uh, that's even more of a problem. (laughs) Uh, the rise of wicca is another example Uh, wiccans believe in the goddess they they often attempt to to speak to the dead they call upon the deities with the use of magic and and all of these things are clearly identified in the bible as demonic and many in our own community even in certain churches are willing to dabble in this kind of thing I've talked to quite a few people in our community who consider themselves Wiccan or have somebody in their family or somebody who's close to them who would consider themselves Wiccan. And sometimes they're even people who go to church. They're people who would say, yeah, I'm a a Christian and I'm a witch. That's a problem. According to another USA Today article from October of last year, uh, The numbers of Americans who identify with Wicca or paganism has risen from 134,000 in 2001 to nearly 2 million today. That's citing a study that was done at the Brandeis University Women's Studies Research Center. Just think about that. 2 million people in our nation right now, this is just from October, actively pursuing demons in rituals and worship. Overt demonic activity is not only present, it is growing as a fascination, as something that people love. And if stuff like this story seems distant to you, just go ask, like, Classine, what she's seen on the mission field. Ask Mel or some of the others who participate in Aroma what they've seen as they reach out to the lost in our community. And that's just the overt, obvious stuff. That's not even to talk about the daily spiritual battle that all of us fight in the heavenly places that we talked about at the end of the year last year. And the truth is, the more that we end up on the front line of mission and the more that we reach the lost, the more we will see that this is not just a story of the past. We need Jesus' authority over demonic activity right now, right here. Now, I don't say that to get you freaked out. I don't say that to send you on demon hunts or to, like, 
tell you to go perform exorcisms or anything like that as you get out there on mission. That is never commanded in the Bible as the response to this. When these things come up in the Bible, it's merely describing how Jesus and his disciples encountered these things and dealt with it. But the point of these stories is to show that Jesus has ultimate authority over the spiritual realm. He casts out demons with a word and he has compassion on those who are tormented by them. And we need not fear the spiritual realm because our Savior King reigns supreme there. Spiritual warfare we face is not a fair battle. It's not some evenly matched tug of war in the cosmos. Satan and his demons are stronger than us for sure, but they are not stronger than Christ. And so to those who might dabble in the occult, I would say, stop, turn, You're playing with fire that will consume you and you are giving attention to something that is far less wonderful and powerful than Jesus Christ. And to those who will go in the power of Christ on mission, I want you to know that he's got you. He's got you and nothing can harm you ultimately if you trust him. Jesus has spiritual compassion, and that's multiplied by his authority over demons. That's the first part of the equation. Let's add to that now physical compassion that's multiplied by authority over disease. Physical compassion multiplied by authority over disease. Jesus and his four new followers now move on to Simon Peter and Andrew's house. They go home for lunch after church. And here's where we learn for the first time that that Simon is married because his mother-in-law is sick with a fever. This is apparently very concerning to them because they told Jesus immediately. Remember, it's it's not like when you take some Tylenol, you could just like take some Tylenol and and draw a cold bath and take a nap and your fever's gone in a few days and it's not a big deal, right? Like this is this is the time when fevers kill people. And if Jesus was your average person, he would be risking something by entering this house and getting near to her. But Jesus apparently doesn't seem scared. Notice the compassion he shows her in verse 31. It says he came. He came. He he got close. No social distancing here. He, He took her by the hands no gloves, there's no sterile environment. He lifted her up and the fever left her. Do you sense the closeness? Do you sense the tender care and compassion as Jesus moves towards this woman? And she was healed to such a degree that she began serving I just imagine like this really old lady with this wrinkly face who like just like pops up and she's like, look at how skinny you are. You just need some food. You just need some meat on those bones. She just starts cooking like some Italian old lady or something like that, right? But this is not medicine or magic. This is sheer authority over disease. 
This is the creator of our bodies restoring health and vitality. And this authority is exercised out of a total compassion for this woman. She did nothing to earn it. She had never met Jesus before this moment. He just looked upon her sickly, helpless condition and made her well. This is exactly what you want in a healer or a doctor, right? Like you want your healer or your doctor to have a good bedside manner. You want them to be compassionate. You want them to take good care of you, right? But a good bedside manner isn't quite enough. You want them to actually be able to deal with the problem you're facing. That's why you get, went to them. And Jesus is both abundantly compassionate and exceptionally capable. Now, many people will have a hard time with a story like this because they're, they're going to say, like, well, well, if Jesus is so compassionate and he's so capable, then why doesn't he heal everyone? Why, why doesn't he heal me? Why didn't he heal my loved one who just died of cancer or who just had a stroke or whatever it is? To which I would say, um, I don't know. We, we may never know exactly why in the particular situations, but that does not change his compassion or authority. I do know this, that Jesus is always exercising authority over the spiritual and the physical to produce eternal results for the good of his people. Jesus is always exercising authority over the physical and the spiritual to produce eternal results for the good of his people. He can heal. He is compassionate to heal. And if he does not heal, it's because he has a bigger and better plan that he is working out. And the Apostle Peter gives us a, a little window into this in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may, found, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He, he, he's saying, if Jesus keeps you in a trial, in this case, some sort of battle with disease, it's because he is producing a precious and valuable faith in you. And that's just one of the things that he might be doing. And that faith will result in greater praise and honor and glory when Jesus returns, which is the whole reason for your existence. And so you can trust him. Now in verses 32 to 34, uh, Mark summarizes the two parts of the equation that we have so far. Uh, he says, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered at the door. You think that might have taken a little while to work through some of those? And he healed many, doesn't say all, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. 
and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, spiritual compassion multiplied by authority over demonic forces plus physical compassion multiplied by authority over disease uh, must be included with this part of the equation, uh, relational compassion multiplied by authority over defilement. So we're going to jump right now over verses 35 to 39. And we're going to come back to them in a moment. They, they actually form the main point of this whole set of stories. But for now, we're going to look at this story of the leper in verses 40 to 45. So somewhere along this journey through Galilee, a, a leper comes up to him and begs him. Just picture him down on his knees, pleading with Jesus, wailing with tears in his eyes. If you will, you can make me clean. Notice the humility in that statement. If you will. Notice the confidence. There's, there's no presumption. There's no pretense. Just total faith. If you will. If you so desire, I know you can make me clean. And then look at what it says in verse 41. This gives us a little window into Jesus' mindset. Moved with pity. Moved with pity. Jesus is experiencing here a strong flood of emotion. The word here is like he's almost angry with the disease that this man is facing. He's overcome with compassion, with righteous indignation. And he does the unthinkable. He stretches out his hand and touches him. Now to us, this might just seem like another healing story, like, like he touched Simon's mother-in-law, right? But, but this, is, this is a big no-no to touch a leper. You have to understand that according to the law, leprosy was next to death in how defiling it was. It made you ceremonially unclean. It, it also exposed you to the disease itself. Being a leper wasn't just about having a disease. It was about being socially defiled. You had to live outside the camp. You had to leave your loved ones. And because of the sin in, your, in people's hearts, you weren't just ceremonially unclean. You were socially, socially unacceptable. They made it an identity. They took the law and they used it for harm. Which is why it is so shocking when Jesus reaches out his hand and touches him. And here he exercises his authority with compassion. He says, I will. I want to do this. Be clean. That's not the only exercise of authority here. He, he, next, he, he sternly charged him. This is another word of anger, which is curious, but we'll talk about why in a second. He sternly charged him to say nothing to anyone, but also to go see the priest and to make the offering and, and cleansing that is in the law. He's giving the man the necessary steps to be restored back into community. 
That, that was the law of Moses' way to get him back into society. Jesus can't stand to see this man separated from his community. He can't stand to see the way this defilement has separated him from society and from the lives of those he loves. And so he uses his authority to show compassion. Think about the people whose society keeps away because they're defiled. Maybe it's based on their cleanliness. I'm going to walk on the other side of the grocery aisle from that person. Maybe it's because of their abilities or disabilities. Maybe, it's, maybe society views a person's weight or body type as a defilement. Maybe it's substance abuse that, that, that somebody would consider defiling. You know what? They're a lost cause. Just leave them alone. Maybe it's based on income or status or race. It's those people whom society would say are defiled that Jesus looks at and says, I have compassion on you. I have compassion on you. Those are the people whom he draws near to and restores. Most often he does that simply by calling his church, his body, to have different ideas about what defiles a person, to have his sense of compassion Jesus changed the idea of defilement from what is outside of a person to what is inside of a person, and he changed the way that we deal with that, not by going to Moses, and uh, not by going to the priest, rather, but, but by going to Jesus and allowing him to cleanse us. And, and sometimes, sometimes if the thing is truly harmful, Jesus will transform the defilement itself like he did for this leper. Either way, the goal is transformation. The goal is restoration. And his method is to use his authority, his saving power, to show compassion. There's somebody here that needs to believe and feel the compassion of Jesus today. You are never too far gone to be brought near. To our Savior. And so this man goes and he, he doesn't listen to Jesus and he tells everyone what Jesus has done for him. We're going we're gonna to see that as a problem in a moment. But the man is accepted back into society and the fame of Jesus spreads. And, and really we, we see from this third scene that, that there's, a, there's a pattern here. These three scenes follow roughly the same pattern. The, the pattern goes like this. It's up on the screen for you. Uh, the, first, the scene is set. So you have Jesus there with at least one other person in this pattern. Uh, Jesus encounters a person with a problem, a spiritual problem, a physical problem, and a relational social problem, right? Jesus has compassion and exercises authority. Whatever that problem is then submits to his authority. It's the demon, the fever, the leprosy followed by the fame of Jesus spreading, almost uncontrollably. So if you look at the next scene that we're going to study next week, you're going to see the same pattern, which makes four scenes, emphasizing Jesus' authority, two spiritual, two physical. 
And right in the middle of those four scenes, if you include that one from next week, Mark adds this fifth scene that reverses the whole pattern of the other four. With with this technique in view, uh, this section, verses 35 to 39, become the main point of the whole section. Uh, Take a look at this with me. Let's follow this pattern, the, the pattern flipped there in the bottom. So look at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So instead of Jesus in a scene now with other people, we find Jesus alone. This is unique. He's praying. He's he's communing with God. Two persons of the Godhead here are seen talking to one another, enjoying their absolute fellowship, right? Verse 36, And Simon and and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him. And so in verse 36, we, we, instead of him encountering a person with a problem, the disciples now come looking for him. They, they perceive that he is the problem. Jesus is not where he should be. Uh-oh. Verse 37. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. So get this, instead of Jesus at the climax of this scene, at the turning point of this scene, exercising authority, the disciples and the crowds are trying to make demands of him and exercise authority over him. Essentially, they're saying, why aren't you where we want you to be? Why are you doing what we we want you to be doing? Don't you work for us? Isn't it so easy to to get into that mindset once you start seeing somebody who's compassionate and gentle and who has the authority to deal with things. So then look at verse 38. Instead of being controlled by the demands of the crowds, I love this, Jesus just continues on with his purpose. Verse 38. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Typically, if you were seeking fame, if you were, if you were lacking self-confidence, if you were famous, you'd be like, oh yes, my fans, my fans, I've got to get out to my fans. I've got to build my crowds. But, but Jesus isn't seeking fame in that way. He, he's secure in his own glory. He's going to do what he came to do. And so the setting sort of then comes at the end, verse 39 And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. His fame spread despite, despite Jesus not submitting to their demands. Because he has ultimate authority, because he deserves the attention on him. And so here's the point. Yes, Jesus is compassionate. Yes, he is absolutely able to heal, but Jesus cannot be controlled. He, we do not get to make demands of him. He is king and he will fulfill the purpose for which he came to proclaim the kingdom with authority and to call everyone to repentance and faith. And really, this is the answer to our equation. A spiritual compassion that's multiplied by authority over demons plus physical compassion that's multiplied by authority over disease plus relational compassion that's multiplied by authority over defilement equals total compassion and total authority over me.
I have to look at the authority of Jesus and say, He is king and I am not. He is in control and I am not. All of, this, all of the miracles in this section are about Jesus' compassion and his authority. So it's not one or the other. I've heard some people talk about the miracles of Jesus as if the only reason he did miracles was to validate his message. That is a heartless and unjustifiable reading of the Gospels. You cannot read the Gospels and walk away with that assumption. Jesus did miracles because he had compassion on people. Look at these, look at these stories. The compassion is what moves him every time. He responded to the guy who interrupted his sermon by freeing him from a demon. He touched the woman lying on her deathbed with fever. He touched the leper. But we must not think then that Jesus' compassion means that we can manipulate him. That we can make demands of him. We cannot talk back to Jesus the way the demon did. We cannot ignore Jesus' commands the way the leper did. So, so that whole sternly charged thing, like it, it's Jesus is frustrated and, and it's presumably because he knows this guy isn't going to listen to him. He just healed him and now he's going off and doing his own thing. We can't talk back, we can't ignore, and we can't make demands of Jesus like the disciples and the crowds tried to do. The only response is to willingly place ourselves under the authority of Christ. The compassion of Jesus is not there to make much of us. It's there to make much of him. He is the one with all authority. He is the one with tender and kind compassion. Pay attention to him. And this is good news. It is good news when Jesus shows up as king in this way. Notice that in the first scene, the response of the people is to, to pay attention to his authoritative teaching and to marvel. They are refreshed in the way that Jesus teaches. The response of the mother-in-law is to me immediately get up and serve him. Jesus' response to the disciples is that his whole purpose for being there is to preach in every town. And what did he preach? He preached the good news of the kingdom. What did his healing and his deliverance prove? It proved the good news of his kingdom. The total compassion and the total authority of Jesus' kingdom is good news for all who would embrace it. It means that he has ultimate power over the spiritual forces of this present age that wage war against your soul. And he himself put them to shame by nailing your sins to his cross. And he is coming again, and he is going to be the reigning king who fully destroys all of Satan and his demons and throws them into the lake of fire once he has freed all of his own through the preaching of the gospel. His total compassion and his total authority means that he has full control over disease because he is the one who conquered death to which all disease leads. 
He came out of death on the other side with a new glorified body. And one day he's going to heal every disease and give new glorified bodies to every person who believes in him. His total compassion and his total authority means that he can take care of all of the social relational barriers that stand between you and other people. He's doing that right now through his church that is his kingdom family. And he's going to do that throughout all eternity when we stand in unity around his throne, eyes fixed on him. And his total compassion and his total authority are good news because he is restoring people to where they belong in their relationship to God with him on the throne and them enjoying his perfect beauty and glory. And we must totally repent and we must totally believe that good news. We must sit up and pay attention to him. We must not assume that he's there to put us on the throne. We must stand in awe like the people of the synagogue. We must serve him like the mother-in-law. We must listen to his preaching. There is not one part of your life that Christ's kingdom does not touch. Spiritual, physical, relational, Jesus has authority over it all. And he has compassion in it all. And our response must be to believe his compassion. Don't think of him as a bad king who wants the worst for his people. He is the best king who is working for your good and his glory. And he is willing to do anything to get Everything out of the way of that. Our response must be to believe his compassion and to believe his authority. He delivers and people stand up and take notice. Jesus came out to, to preach in every town. He had a message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now is the time. Now is the time for you to tell others. And now is the time for you to believe yourself that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And at the end of each scene, we see the fame of Jesus spreading. People were paying attention. I mean, like, how could you not pay attention to this? And at this point in Jesus' ministry, it was not time for it to spread that much. He keeps telling people to keep his identity a secret even though that doesn't happen, and, and it's a big part of the motif of, of, of Mark, he, he doesn't want people to have the wrong idea of what he came to do. Christ was a, a packed word, packed with meaning for people, a lot of wrong meaning. And he, he needed to reveal the whole picture, and it wasn't time for that yet. But on this side of the cross, on this side of the gospel of Mark, now is the time. Now is the time. We do have the whole picture. We can see Jesus in all of his compassion and authority, and we must respond. We must pay attention to him, and it is only natural if he really did all the things that Mark says he did. You can't just write off exorcisms and healings. You can't just be like, huh, Jesus. He's cool when I need him. You have to really wrestle with who this Jesus is. Now let's do that in prayer. 
Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.